When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until the kingdom of heaven, until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be back with you guys. Good morning. My name is Steve, for those of you who don't know me. And uh, we're continuing through the Gospel of Matthew. And what uh, Matthew's Gospel is about is it highlights the fact that Jesus keeps teaching the fact that I've come to bring you into a better kingdom, is what Jesus communicates throughout this gospel. And if you've been with us, or if you've read Matthew before, maybe just if you've been a Christian for a while, one thing you may have been picking up on is that being in the kingdom of God involves suddenly, you have to hold a series of paradoxes that you're not really used to holding together. You know, so paradoxes, things that look contradictory, but in fact they aren't. So is Jesus fully God, or is he fully human? Yes. Okay, is the kingdom of God about the age to come, life eternal, or is it about the here and now? Yes. Okay, is Jesus compassionate and humble beyond bearing, or do people hate him and run from him because he demands that they worship him? Yes. And today we're introduced to a new paradox, and that is the paradox of faith and doubt. Faith and doubt. And as I've talked with people over the years and I read a lot of stories about people leaving the church, particularly in the West, I've realized that for a lot of people, it's not so much that they leave the Christian faith because they have doubts per se, but instead it's almost as if they believe they're not allowed to have them. Right? So either due to maybe it's your temperament or maybe due to your religious environment, it's like you feel that there's this binary of I have to choose Jesus or I have to choose doubt. But I can't have both together. And this is a, this is a problem. Uh, not just scripturally is it a problem, but it's a problem in particular in the age that we live in. 
And I recently picked up a book called The Bulwarks of Unbelief by Dr. Joseph Minnick. Uh, bulwarks means a fortification or a defensive wall. Why use the word bulwarks? That's what academics do, okay? <laughs> but it's called Bulwarks of Belief. And he's describing the fact that in our modern technological age, it's not so much that rational arguments for God have gone away, but it's more the fact that there's a, there's a heavier felt absence of God than there used to be. Uh, not just for unbelievers, but for believers of well. And here's, here's what it says in the, the very beginning of the book, and this will also be on the screen. So, in 1500, belief in Christianity was intuitive, resting upon bulwarks of belief that made denial of Christianity really difficult. Today, however, the opposite applies. One chooses to believe in the Christian faith in the face of a culture where the bulwarks are in favor of unbelief. So before it was like it was really hard to doubt. Now it's as if it's really hard to believe is essentially what he's saying. And then here's the key. This is why many Christians feel their own hearts to be battlegrounds, not simply between righteousness and unrighteousness, but between faith and atheism. In other words, it's as if he's saying, like, we're all doubting Thomas now. Okay, so it's almost as if we're all struggling to believe, you know, in, in the midst of doubts. And, you know, if, if you're like me, and this got really intense for me about a decade ago, but, like, this may be you now, this may come to you in the future, but you ever in church or you're walking around, you're reading the Bible, and you're just thinking, like, am I the crazy one? <laughs> like, am I the crazy one believing this whole thing about, a, you know, the Holy Spirit lives in me and a... God who became a human and died, rose again from the, like, am I crazy? And what I, this story made a, just has a really big, uh, this is a really big personal story in my own life, Matthew 11, how Jesus meets John the Baptist in the midst of his doubt. And so let's look at uh, what Jesus teaches us about doubt, okay, in this exchange with John the Baptist through uh, these three headings. He says, uh, do this with doubt, essentially. Uh, don't be afraid of it. Question it. And follow Christ in the midst of it. Okay, so don't be afraid of it. Question it. Follow Christ or follow me in the midst of it. Okay, so number one, don't be afraid of it. Verse two. Now when John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And this question hits different when you understand who is asking this question. So we met this cat, John the Baptist, back in chapter 3, and he's a prophet who he understood himself to be the herald of the Messiah, long prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures. And at this point in history, Israel is under the impression, the oppression of Rome. And so Israel, and probably John, understood that whenever this Messiah appeared— what he or she would do was throw, like, throw Rome off the necks of Israel and restore Israel to former glory. But at this point, a lot of time has passed since John heralded Jesus, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is looking very different than he expected. So first, John's in prison as a result of being in league with Jesus. And then Jesus, instead of Throwing off the tyranny of Rome, he's preaching an ethic of nonviolence to his followers. He's responding to Roman soldiers' prayers for their servants to be healed. He's spending an awful lot of time at dinner parties. And John is just, he's in here in prison. And so John does what you or I do when God doesn't act in the way we expected, or he takes a lot longer to act in the way we hoped. John doubts. 
And so the first lesson we see here is that, like, I hope this helps you exhale. Doubt is normal. Doubt is normal. If it happened to John, it, it is or it will happen to you. Okay, John is the one, he was at Jesus' baptism when he saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descend on Jesus and he heard God's voice, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now he's doubting. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, John, didn't you hear the voice? Didn't you see the dove? <laughs> no, he, he sends, he's patient with John. He sends a response back to John. And then he praises John. He says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. In other words, John's doubt doesn't diminish his purposes for which God made him. John's doubt doesn't lower him in the eyes of God. John's doubt doesn't get him kicked out of the church. Jesus' response to doubters is God has always responded to doubters with compassion and care. And so, as we think about an application in the midst of this, it's because doubt is normal, don't be afraid of it. And we can apply this both corporately and individually. So, corporately, maybe it's helpful to think about it this way. So there's this dynamic that takes place in parenting, and you may have seen it with your parents, you may see it in other parents, maybe you're a parent, you can see that this is probably going to take place. But it's this dynamic where you're afraid that your child is going to actually grow up. Okay, and so you try to shield them from the complexities of life and the darker shades of life. There's this fear almost of them going through puberty because now there's even more hormones swirling around the house. And oh my goodness, like what if your child suddenly starts, starts to push back against the, the deep values you've been working so hard to instill in them all their life? And what happens in churches is many churches treat doubt like puberty, right? It's like, we're just trying to keep things squeaky clean. We don't want anybody to question us because that's going to just, or question God because that's going to get things, that's going to make things really messy. So if somebody expresses something, it's like, shh, don't say that. (laughs) Don't express that. But because God always moves towards doubters and is so patient with them and sits with them and answers with them, we need to do this as a church. And this was one of our core convictions since day one, but it bears repeating, especially since we have newer people in our church. It is so important for every single Christian here to remember what it's like to not believe. Or if that's never been you, you've just always believed, to have some awareness and empathy to realize that it's not always easy to believe for a lot of people. And so we, of all people, should be so patient and welcoming toward people who ask questions. Okay, rather than jumping straight to, like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to answer this? This person's not allowed to ask this. Okay, just to relax. Okay, we don't need to be afraid of it corporately because doubts are normal. And secondly, don't be afraid of it in your personal life because doubt is often the very means by which God grows you. You may have experienced this. Before doubt comes, your faith is often superficial. Maybe you have a false image of God. Usually it's just a big projection of yourself. And suddenly when pain comes or when Christianity suddenly doesn't feel as plausible as it once did, like on a deep visceral level, suddenly it's either, okay, I either need to reject Jesus, right, or or fear for my life in the midst of these doubts. And if you take a fear approach the fear-based approach to doubts every time like questions start to come, like they're knocking on the door and you're just like, shh, go away, go away. Eventually, when the doubts do come barging through the door and make themselves a house guest in your mind, and they will. 
you're not going to know what to do. Okay, and so use doubt, even the smallest ones, as an opportunity to lean into God so that he can actually grow you. I mean, just this past week, I was having to be really honest with God and just praying things like, God, I don't, I don't trust you in this area. I don't actually believe you that you're going to do what you promise you'll do. And he met me in that. Okay, so that, that's point one. Don't be afraid of it. Okay, so whether that's us as a church or for, for you as a believer, doubts are normal. Okay, so you can actually lean into God. He'll use it to grow you. So don't be afraid of it. Uh, number two, however, question it. Question doubts when it comes. And here we see this in verse 16 and 17. So at this point, Jesus turns from John. He sends the messengers back to John. And he's now speaking to the crowd. And in typical Jesus fashion, he gives a pithy, concise, memorable illustration. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So he's painting this picture of like two groups of children and group one are the musicians. Okay, so they're the musicians and group number two is a group of kids throwing a tantrum. And so group number one, they play a, a happy song. Okay, and Jesus, he's probably historically often in, in villages at the time, music would be brought out either at a wedding celebration or a funeral. So that's, he's, he's probably drawing on, on that. But so the, the children, they, they play the flute. And group two goes, what's wrong with you? That song's way too happy. We're not going to dance. So then the musicians go, oh, okay. All right, so we'll play a sad song. And they sing a dirge. And then group number two goes, what a dumb tune. That's far too sad. And so they're saying, well, the problem is your tunes. But that's not the problem. There is a problem under the problem. And that's that these children are throwing a tantrum and nothing is good enough for them. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's distinguishing between doubt and unbelief. So doubt is a struggle amid belief. Okay, that, that's what John's doing. He's saying, I want to believe, but right now I'm struggling to believe my beliefs. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Okay, so doubt is a struggle amid belief. Unbelief, however, is it's a settled attitude where you look at God and you say, until you play my tunes, until you fulfill my script for how life needs to go, I'm out. And so as, as we think about questioning your doubt, here's what we mean. So first, anytime a doubt comes, right? It can take a hundred different forms. The first question that's helpful to ask is just to discern, is this, is this doubt? Am I just struggling to believe? Like, is there a sincere desire for me to want Jesus? That's a good thing. That's what John's doing here. So is it doubt or is it unbelief? Okay, the settled attitude where it doesn't really matter what God says. It's, it's almost like he can't say or do anything unless it maps one-to-one with your preferences and expectations. And so it's, it's, it's a comforting question if you're in the former camp, right? Because you can remember that God's not disappointed in you if you're doubting. Okay, all throughout the scriptures, God repeatedly bears witness to the fact that he knows it's hard to believe. Okay, so if you're doubting, that's okay. In fact, bravo for having the awareness and the, the courage to admit it. But it should be a challenge to you if you are the person, like you just have to have the honesty to say, is this a settled attitude where it doesn't really matter what God does? And I wouldn't underestimate how powerful this impulse is to think you're using just reasonable skepticism 
when in fact it's unbelief. So as an example, something that I hear a fair amount is, you know, just if, if God would just show up and do something tangible, I would believe. And I get that longing. Deep in my, deep in my bones, I've felt that longing. But it doesn't take long to pick at it until you realize it doesn't hold that much weight. And one reason we know is because all throughout history, God has done tangible acts in front of his people and they don't believe. He appears as a pillar of fire to the Israelites and many of them don't believe. Jesus right here, God himself, he's performing miracles of power, raising the dead, performing miracles of profound kindness and goodness and healing the sick and feeding people. And people are still saying, what? Oh, well, you know, you're just eating and drinking. Like you're, you're a friend of, of tax collectors and sinners, eating and drinking. You're, you're a glutton and a drunkard. Okay, again, it's like you're not playing my tune. And so just have the, have the humility to acknowledge that there is a powerful resistance in the human heart where we just, we really don't want to submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord, okay, regardless of what he says or, or does for us. So that's number one. Is your doubt actual doubt? Or is it unbelief? And number two, another helpful question to ask is, what belief is hiding underneath of your doubt? Okay, what belief is hiding underneath of your doubt? And here's what I mean. It's, in popular imagination, it seems, there's, we've gone through this shift, whereas before, in a lot of religious circles, it was almost as if you were shamed for doubting. But now in a lot of circles, be it, that of secular humanists or deconstructionists or podcasts like The Liturgist or others, it's like you're almost shamed for believing, right? Where it's like, no, the sophisticated approach, the educated approach is to always be unsure, to always be questioning. And there is a place for questioning, okay? And hopefully if you've been in this church, you've you've felt that here. There is a place for questioning. However, to say, I'm just going to stand in this place of skepticism and not choose a side until like God, if he's there, gives me something is to misunderstand how belief and doubt work because you can't doubt something without standing on another belief. And there's a great example of this that came up recently. And there's a historian named Molly Worthen. She's a professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill. And she grew up an atheist and she just recently converted to Christianity. And she, actually, in the past, she's written articles in the Times and the Atlantic, like critiquing evangelicals. Uh, a number of these critiques are, are founded. But she recently converted, and so a lot of people are asking her, you know, what happened? And so I was listening to an interview she was doing, and she's describing her conversion, which was a long journey. And she borrowed this image from a book called A Severe Mercy. It was written by a friend of C.S. Lewis, okay, about his conversion journey. <clears throat> and what Molly says is she says, as I was, you know, Investigating Christianity, I always thought that it's like there was this chasm in front of me, and Jesus was on the other side of this chasm. And in order for me to believe, I had to take a leap of faith over the chasm to believe in Jesus. So it's like, I just can't take that leap of faith like so many other people seem to do. Then she says, however, what happened is I looked behind me, and I realized there was already a chasm behind me. Like, I had already taken a leap of faith to come to the position where I'm in. In other words, she's saying, like, I can't question Jesus without standing on, an, on a whole other set of assumptions about how reality works, what the purpose of human life is, what we should be doing, where history is going. Because under every doubt is another belief. And so just as some examples, like if you say, 
I just can't get behind Christianity or I struggle with it because how could Jesus possibly be the only way given how many people are in the world? But to have that doubt is to believe either God doesn't exist or if he does exist, he doesn't care what you believe. That's a belief. How do you know that? Or another one, this may be more common today. It's just really hard for me to adopt Christianity because the ethics of Jesus are repulsive to me. Okay, so whether it's about self-denial or identity or marriage or loving enemies or compassion, like I just can't get behind these ethics that Jesus teaches. Okay, you, you can have that objection, but just acknowledge that while you're doing so, you're standing on another belief, which is to say, God, if he's there, would never have any ethics that upset me. Okay, so the, the line isn't between we have people of faith and people who don't have faith. The line is between people who have faith convictions and people who have faith convictions and don't know they have them. Okay, so that's question number two is what doubt is hiding under, or what belief is hiding underneath of that doubt? Hopefully that's, that's helpful. It's been very helpful in, in my own journey. So that's what you mean by number two. Okay, so don't be afraid of doubt. Uh, but number, but number two, question your doubts. So number three, how do we walk amid this? And Jesus says to, he says, follow me or follow Christ in the midst of it. And notice what Jesus does here. So he doesn't take the, more conservative fundamentalist route of like, stop doubting. Okay, you're, you're a weak believer if you're doubting. But he also doesn't say, hop on the herd mentality of the deconstructionists and the secular humanists and so forth and just say, well, we just, we can't really know for sure. No, he charts a path forward. And I think the key is in verse six, where he said, blessed, where he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And another way you can translate that is, Blessed is the one who doesn't turn aside on account of me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on account of me. Put another way, blessed is she or he who doesn't throw me away when the inevitability of doubt comes. And there are, there are a few ways uh, that, that we can do this. There's some practical ways that we can do this to not throw Jesus away when the inevitability of doubt comes. And drawing off of what he just said is, first, it helps to define success in the Christian life as commitment rather than certainty. Okay, define success as commitment rather than certainty. Uh, In the scriptures, uh, the Bible never talks about faith as 100% certainty. Okay, or it doesn't even talk about faith in terms of just mental assent. And it's always a full body and soul, right, embodied trust and commitment to Jesus. And especially maybe due to the tradition you were brought up in or just due to our, our age, which is very feelings-based, and we focus a lot on our on our psychology, like what we're thinking up here. If you, like if you're always measuring how good you're doing based on are you 60% sure, are you 20% sure, are you 90% sure, you're going to spiral, Okay, but in the scriptures, faith, it's not a psychological category. It's a covenantal category. Okay, it's, it's making a pledge of commitment, even in spite of the fact that you don't have 100% certainty. And most of life, a lot of life works like this. Marriage vows. Okay, taking a job. Right now, 
I do not have 100% certainty that somebody's not breaking into my car right now and slashing my tires, right? But I'm, I'm living in trust, right, to the fact that that's probably not happening. And so I'm not having a meltdown here because of that. Okay, and so faith, it's more about commitment. And so when the Bible uses the word faith, it, there's this semantic range or this range of meaning with the word faith. And like other synonyms for faith are trust or commitment or one of the ones that's been most helpful to me is allegiance. Okay, what are you giving your fundamental allegiance to? And every human gives their allegiance to something, whether it's sports or career or politics or hedonism or upward mobility or a pop star or Oprah or Jordan Peterson or Richard Dawkins. Okay, we all have an authority we look to to say, just like, tell me what I should be believing. We all have an altar that we make sacrifices on and say, I will give up anything for this. And so for the Christian, what it means is making your allegiance Jesus. And yes, you're going to have many days where you're like John, you're saying, are you the one? Because it doesn't feel like it, but you continue to walk, you continue to commit, and Jesus will grow your faith over time. Okay, so that's number one, is to find success based off of your, where your allegiance is. Where's your commitment? Number two, hold to the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. Okay, hold to the, the, the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. See how Jesus answers John? Go and tell John what you see. Then verse 5, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And what Jesus is doing is he's combining a number of Old Testament quotes and prophecies, mainly from the book of Isaiah, prophesying about himself, prophesying about what would happen when the king of the kingdom shows up. And in other words, and he's appealing to passages that John already knows. And so the, the advice he's giving to John is the same advice that's really good for us today. He, Jesus is saying, hear my words, hold to my words, and hold to my works. And so for us, like, this is, this is one reason why going back to the scriptures, that's the main place we hold to the words of Jesus, is so important. Okay, corporately here in church, privately, okay, in the morning before you start your day, going back to Jesus' words— Okay, him reminding you of what, of what truth is, reminding him of the assurity of the fact that you are God's child and where he's taking the world. Okay, so we need to hear Jesus' words and also we need to hold to his works. Okay, whether it's seeing them in scripture or is something as simple and profound as something like that what happened to me last week is when a church member comes alongside you and cares for you when you're hurting or lonely or afraid. And Sometimes when it comes to holding to and believing the words and the works of Jesus, you need other people to do it. If I can get through this. You need people to, to, to do it for you. Uh, about 10 years ago, you know, when I was called to be an elder in my former church, I, I just went into the, the biggest crisis of faith I ever went through. And this wasn't just, oh yeah, there's some thorny questions I have a hard time answering. This was me telling my church and me telling Kelsey like very shamefully, I am pretty sure I'm not going to be a Christian on the other side of this. And my church and Kelsey, day after day, prayed for me, even when I thought that prayer didn't do anything. Kelsey would leave me notes in the kitchen, just reminding me of God's words to me, reminding me of the works of God in Scripture and in my own life. And that that is the reason why I made it through. So sometimes you need others to believe for you. Okay, to speak the words of Jesus to you. 
even when you yourself are having a really hard time believing. That's one of the, the greatest gifts of the church. Okay, so that's number two. Hold to the, the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. And then number three is to focus less on your certainty about God and more on God's certainty of his love for you. Okay, focus less on your certainty about God, but more on God's certainty of his love for you. You realize that in the gospel, you have a God who willingly put himself in a place where he had to struggle to believe. You know, so here you have John. He's in a prison of bars and he's doubting at the end of his life. And Jesus Christ, at the end of his life in Gethsemane, is alone. And he's in the prison of his own anguish. And he doubts. And he says, God, I'm in anguish. God, I don't feel like doing this anymore. God, it doesn't feel like this is reasonable. But in his commitment for you, he moves forward. He goes to the cross to redeem you, to renew you, to reshape you. And so because of Jesus, not only does he model how to live in the midst of doubt, but he he covers you so that no matter how weak your faith is, no matter how long of a season you're in doubt, when God sees you in the realest possible way, God deals with you, and he looks at you as if you have the same level of faith as his very son, Jesus. And so, you know, here Jesus, he's accused of being a, a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. Well, he's not a glutton or a drunkard, but thank goodness he's a friend of sinners and doubters too. So let's walk with him okay, and hold to him even amid doubt. Let's pray.